Welcome to this third season of Tell No Show. Tell No Show is an ongoing series of programs in which we ask an artist to present to us a piece of art that has had an impact on them or their practice. And in the next 30 minutes, you will have the pleasure of listening to American artist Nancy Lupo. Nancy will be taking us on a sort of a journey to Florence in Italy and more specifically to the Pitti Palace, former home of the very notorious Italian banker family, the Medici's. In the Pitti Palace, Nancy finds a set of ivory objects turned on a lathe into the shape of cups, vases or trophies. These ivory objects are dated around 15th century and are all commissioned by the Medici family. This leads Nancy to contemplations on the material of ivory and on notions of soft power in the Renaissance versus today. Nancy Lupo is an artist who works primarily in sculpture. She currently lives in Los Angeles where she also teaches at the UCLA. And as it was put somewhere about Nancy's work, more than panic, spiraling is something deeper. Tell No Show is as always produced by me, Andreas Fyre from Institut von Abarge and Jan Høgestrækker from The Lake Radio in Copenhagen. I have nothing left to add except to pass on the microphone to Nancy Lupo. I have no relationship to Ivory. <laughs> you know, yeah, I have no relationship to it, but like, it's spooky as fuck. My name is Nancy Lupo. I am an artist. I actually, I identify as a sculptor, I think, and I write. I live in LA, but right now I've been in Florence for like the past month and I'm going back for another month. I'm working on an exhibition with my friend Monique Mouton, which we decided to title Destiny Cornucopia. Welcome to the city of Dante, Machiavelli, and Michelangelo, and the place where Leonardo da Vinci learned how to paint. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk about these ivory cups um, that I saw in Florence at this pity palace, which was this palace where the Medicis lived and had their kind of base. And later, at some point, Napoleon lived there when he was on one of his missions to conquer. But anyway, <clears throat> now it's a museum, and it's amazing, actually, and sort of overwhelming. In this room, we have got seven paintings by Raphael. We have a, a very large painting by Rubens over here. And this is by Caravaggio. This time, I'll take you in through the Pitti Palace and give you a brief walking tour. It was the biggest palace in Europe until Versailles was constructed by Louis XIV. When Vittorio Emanuele Due was the first king, this was his residence. So it's sort of like the White House of Italy as well, too. Today, there's about six museums inside here, plus the gardens in the back that we'll be able to see when we get upstairs. It it's, was the Medici Palace, and it's right down from the Ponte Vecchio, which is this bridge. It's the only bridge in Florence that wasn't destroyed during World War II. And along the bridge, there are these shops. Now it's like a kind of jewelry district. Like it's, it's like a gold market. 
it's the gold market in Florence. I mean, it's mostly for tourists, I guess, as is everything. But the Medici's did not build it. They bought it from some guy, Petit, um, but lived there. And it is this gigantic stone palace. palace they have a lot of these like ebony cabinets these like very 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 decorative woodwork and scroll work and like embedded precious stones and you're like wow this is like some beautiful inlay or something and then you look closer and it's like all the different colors of the inlay are rendered in these precious stones and it's just like mind-blowing and also these like crazy marble busts, you know, with this like insanely rendered hair, you know, like corkscrews and pasta. That could be another whole thing, just like the hair, the marble hair of this palace. Now the next room is wonderful. Check this one out. When you first walk in the door, there's this cabinet of crazy urns, maybe, like a collection of urns. At first I thought maybe there was like dead dead people inside, inside or like relics of saints or something like this. But later I went to the gift shop and found a postcard and it said that there, it was a cup. Um, and so it was like a cup. Like, what would you drink out of the cup? This artifact is unique, but not isolated. It's one representative of a species of ivory oddities so exuberantly impractical, so elaborately absurd, that they appear, even in person, like spontaneous deformities of reality. But in any case, I thought about it, and I did a Google search, and I think they were never used in any sort of functional sense because ivory stains even if you like touch it with your fingers. So certainly you were not drinking, no one was drinking wine out of these or even the blood of dead babies. So they were really just trophies. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about these objects that I saw at the Pitti Palace in Florence like last week or two weeks ago. They're turned, which I didn't really understand at the time, but they're turned on a lathe and they're made from ivory. And that is another whole sort of probably very dark story. And they were just like really striking. I had never seen anything quite like this before. It was almost just like a kind of like visual dopamine hit or something. I don't think you can really 
legally fuck with ivory anymore, hopefully not. But they look kind of 3D printed. And what they are, which I guess I only really found out later is, um, well, they call them cups in some places, but I feel like they're really well described as and also look like kind of trophies or something, you know, like these like incredibly ornate, like really decorative objects. This thing that pulls you into it with so much sort of like detail and intensity um, in these like little kind of corners and places, like a kind of cabinet of butterflies and like a natural history museum, you know, just like sort of spherical sculptures that are like at times it can like very irregular um, and very kind of like bulbous and lots of these sort of like round shapes. Some of them look drunk. Preternaturally strong, light, fine-grained, and homogeneous ivory is the only substance that can be carved in this manner. There is nothing else that can support such huge globes on such spindly legs or reach such translucency without cracking. It can be shaped to the thinness of paper or pierced to the intricacy of lace without falling apart. Because the lathe cuts in a circle, only a highly skilled turner could use it to carve eccentric, irregular shapes. I mean, they can't all be turned out of like one piece of material. It must be also that there are certain details and decorations that are added on. So this one, I think, really makes you understand that when they're calling them cups, they're really not cups because there's no way that this is actually a cup. Maybe you could say it's a lamp, but then it also does have psychedelic qualities of like a wine glass or something. Not a wine glass that you would ever use, just like a wine glass that you sort of like see and see through but then also see reflections in and kind of trip out. So I like the term psychedelic, even though it, and it's now accepted in biomedical literature, I like it, even though it's got all the 60s baggage associated with it, but it's the most accurate. My favorite, yeah, this one that's like kind of doing a yoga pose or something, it's like on the very top is like a teeny tiny top like a top that you spin, and that's attached right below to a kind of milk drop rendering. You know, this famous Edgerton photograph of the milk drop. In the Electrical Engineering Laboratory at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Professor H.G. E. Edgerton perfects a new high-speed movie camera, which shows the eye of man things that happen too quickly to be seen. Attached to a kind of fatty, dripping lamp. And, and that's wide, like umbrella or sort of like mushroom wide. And then tapers down um, into like a kind of spire. And then there's this bulb-like glass area that's cloudy, starry. There's bubbles in the glass that make it like celestial in this way. And inside of the glass is this teeny, tiny, insanely rendered chandelier out of ivory, of course. So this kind of this like glass shape goes into a pedestal and that looks sort of like um, Baroque candlestick. And like the bottom is like when someone's wearing a dress and they're like spinning around and it's caught in the air. And there's something about that, like in Baroque sort of rendering or fabric, or when I think about Bernini, 
that like it's all about the kind of like hypnosis of the fold. Well, look at the way the wind seems to whip it around his body creating this fabulous torsion in such contrast to the heavy quality of the cloth that she wears. She is of the earth, he is of the heavens. And that also in contrast to the feathers that we can almost feel in his wings. Brunini is using marble, the same substance for all of these, but making them seem such different texture. There's this other kind of like pleasure spectrum happening where like the longer that you look at it, you just like get caught in this kind of like hypnotic undulation of the fabric. And there's like the rounded part and then there's like the fold. And I think in that hypnosis, like when you're, when you kind of like fall into that zone, it's like darker. What do we have to do in there? You will be required to look deep into the dreaded eyes of Iris. The great Egyptian magician. Just looking at them, thinking about Louise Bourgeois sculptures, for example, that also kind of depict this like ascending spiral or sort of like tower form or spiral form. When you look at them with that, it really kind of resonates. There's something really kind of like powerful about, about that sort of like extra logic of collaging or folding in addition to all of this kind of repetitive decoration. By Osiris and by Apis, look at me. Look into my eyes. You have turned into a cat by Osiris and by Apis. A cat. There is something really decadent about these objects um, and the way that they sort of access this like super fantasy imaginative desire and make it really like concrete. They're very sexy, I think uh, we could say. When I saw these objects, it's like the first thing I had seen in a while that almost kind of like a dopamine hit of visual information. Like it's really something I'd never seen before, but also is like, yeah, I guess it's like made on a lathe or has this kind of like machine aspect to it that's, I don't know, like maybe when you see this sort of universe of like 3D printed or CNC cut, computer aided, rendering. I mean, even in architecture, right? Like there's these sort of towers in Shanghai. They couldn't be built without algorithms or the computer. Kind of Matthew Barney objects or something where it's just like so organic, like it's kind of made in a, in a dream space or something. And the only way to really render that dream space in reality is like via some sort of computer. And so I think there is sort of like an analog in, in making like this machine aided making along with the kind of like fantasy aspects of it. What are white things? Like the thing I feel like I come into contact with is like porcelain, like bone, like sugar, or like flour. I don't know, there's this universe of like bleached, <laughs> bleached foodstuffs, like egg, eggshells, milk. Already there's this like extremely kind of like animal, animal, but not like the abject aspects of the animal, like the pristine, life-giving aspects of the animal that are white is a part of what makes them attractive and sort of terrifying. The white whale tasks me. He heaps me. 
I was thinking about in Moby Dick, this chapter called The Whiteness of the Whale. It's a shorter chapter than any other chapter and exists outside of the kind of like narrative drive of the book and is just descriptions of the sort of like varying shades of white of the whale and how it's um, terrifying at times and sublime at times. Though in many natural objects, whiteness refiningly enhances beauty as if imparting some special virtue of its own, as in marbles, japonicas and pearls, and though various nations have in some way recognized a certain royal preeminence in this hue, even the barbaric grand old kings of Pegu placing the title Lord of the White Elephants above all their other magniloquent descriptions of dominion, Everything is a found object, right? Which we would say also of like a tusk and marble and clay or any of these kind of like materials that we just consider materials. They're also like cultural objects um, that have like associative properties that whether you want it to or not stays with the object as it's like transformed or not over time. And I think sculpture is like about tapping into the kind of like of the latency of, of some of those things or some of those associations. They're extremely fantastical. Like you would think about Beauty and the Beast. You would think about all of these ultra, ultra, ultra elaborate, precisely rendered fantasies, which kind of leads into this other thing that they were made by princes. Like it was actually that these kind of Medici princes or whatever needed something to do, like a craft and a hobby. And like there could be a sports version of it, like polo or something, or like you should know a lot about wine or something like this. But so, you you know, you need to sort of do something so they would learn how to do this kind of lathe turning. And so that's kind of interesting to think about fantasy or like the picturing of a kind of like fantasy world or like really, really ornate object that's sort of architectural um, that like proposes some like really extreme imaginative fantasy and that that's coming already like internally from these very privileged minds or something I think is really important like because how else So I think that's kind of interesting and probably that these also weren't really artworks. They were probably more like crafts, like they were like really upper class kind of like craft objects. Little town, it's a quiet village. Every day, like the one before. Little town. The Medici's, they're like bankers. I don't know if we would call them like middle class or what, but they're not nobles. They sort of like go from being these bankers and rise and rise and rise to really kind of legitimately joining the aristocracy or at least like mixing in and marrying the aristocracy. The wealth of the Medici family allowed them access to political power in Florence 
even though they were not regarded as equals by the aristocracy, which made them all that more determined to gain power in any way that they could. And then at some point, there's this real kind of turning point when they get one of the Medicis to be Pope. Pope Leo just happened to be of the Medici family. And then I think there are like several Medici popes and like the the papacy at this time is also like ultra kind of like corrupt and political. And um, I mean, I guess always, but, but I don't know, when you read about it historically, you're like, whoa, what? It all kind of like collides, but there's this movie called Queen Margot. It centers around Margot de Nevers, who's the daughter of Catherine de' Medici. Catherine de' Medici was born on April 13, 1519, in Florence, Italy, to Lorenzo de' Medici, Duke of Urbino, and Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne, a relative of King Francis I of France. Lorenzo de' Medici was merely a commoner, but Madeleine was of noble birth, being the daughter of a count and duchess. Okay, so it's Catherine de' Medici gets married into some sort of French nobility, and eventually becomes the Queen of France. Their marriage in 1518 was a political agreement between the King and Pope Leo X, who was head of the Catholic Church at the time. But her husband was not really interested in her as a wife, which is like, I guess maybe sometimes that would happen, where you'd be like, actually, like, I like you. You're giving me the it's not you, it's me routine? <laughs> I invented it's not you, it's me. But most of the time it was just like transactional and they were married for 10 years and in those 10 years didn't have a child, which is pretty dangerous for her. Those who could not conceive were apt to raise suspicions of witchery because witches were understood to be in league with the devil who could not generate life and so were infertile. You know, if you don't have a kid, you're, it's going to be over very quickly, but she did. Um, and then had a couple... Several of her sons became king, but she was always really kind of like scheming in the background and uh, had this kind of um, assassin who was her perfumer. And this guy is sort of like, in, in some histories, kind of credited as like the father of perfume. Santa Maria Novella Pharmacy is thought to be the oldest apothecary in the world. He, maybe he was like a monk somehow, but somehow he's like associated with Santa Maria Novella, which was like this kind of like pharmacy and then became this sort of perfumery, which is like common for, for like the, the operations of these monasteries. Oh, very good one. Pharmacy director Gianluca Foa says it dates back to 1221 when its Dominican monks began experimenting with alchemy. But then eventually, you know, Santa Maria Novella became sort of what it is now, which is just like this uh, sort of like magical ancient um, perfume house um, that still, I guess, produces this like Catherine de' Medici perfume that he made for her. Okay, so he did do that. He did really make perfume, but what he also made was like these poisons. Um, so like a kind of lipstick that when you put it on and kiss somebody is like loaded with arsenic and they'll just like foam at the mouth and die immediately. Catherine de' Medici was a woman of her times and a woman ahead of her time. She received an education far beyond what was considered respectable for a woman. And yet she came to be called the Serpent Queen, along with the Dark Queen, the Black Queen, and even the Queen of Poisons. 
Feel free to leave comments below to let me know what you think about Catherine de' Medici. You know, you like study, I guess, the Renaissance a little bit in school and in some sort of like Western consciousness in a very expanded sense. All of these kind of like major works of art, the Botticelli, Birth of Venus and Da Vinci and Rubens and Caravaggio. Like it's all sort of like you just know what it is, even though you really don't know what it is. And here he's learning about geography, philosophy, the fine arts. These, the, the heavens, the uh, universe is being explained to him by the muses. Yeah, I like never really thought very much about the Renaissance until you kind of get there and then all at once in a way when you're sort of seeing these things, you're kind of like understanding this humanistic consciousness at this time and like the constructing of this idea of like the refinement of the human being the sort of aspiration of the Renaissance man where you were like an artist and an inventor and a musician and you were very charming and you were charismatic also. And in a way, I think like Lorenzo de' Medici really sort of like fixated on artists and used them as these ambassadors of sort of soft power and control for the way that they could slither between worlds and be these um, trickster characters and not behave by sort of aristocratic rules or bourgeois rules. They could kind of slide around and perform these different functions, perform, I don't know, like a kind of wildness or a sort of freedom or a kind of like refinement or some sort of like function of the imagination. And that that's a function of like merchants, like money, like not not aristocratic money, but just like business money, basic money, aspirational money, like trying to kind of build up power and influence and in that art, but also really like the artist. Some of these like particular artists that do this turning, they're also making ballistics like ammunition you know is like turned on on the lathe and also pyrotechnics right and that's something that da vinci was also like doing a lot for the medicis is like putting on like firework displays you know that was like something he was like commissioned to do a lot and I don't know, it's like, it is very contemporary, right? If you think about Kanye or like Kim Kardashian or something where it's like their sort of cultural soft power influence is unmatched. We have all the time and all of the resources to burn them all to the ground. Never go against the family. Never go against the family. You know, what do you do? And it's like, well, I left the house today wearing pants boots and like this superhero era or something is like embodied in these kind of pants boots. Or I don't know, maybe like Balenciaga generally. It's like, what is it doing? Like it's staging this sort of S&M clown show on Wall Street, you know, and that's like this really kind of like powerful particular mechanism to look at our contemporary moment. 
in a way that's like operating in a much bigger cultural power moment than, than some other practices. Some people like deeply think that's art and some people are just like, fuck that, that's not art. I don't know, but yeah, like that's the kind of like model of the Medici's. And also like um, one thing I realized is that uh, Kim and Kanye were married in Florence. <laughs> and I was like, mm, makes sense. To make sense. If something makes sense, it's easy to understand. It's clear. The first sentence in this essay just doesn't make sense. I can't understand it. Something sensible and reasonable, showing common sense. So what he said about the situation made sense. And I think he's probably right. Yeah, I think it's like art power, but I think it's also like like that it's spectacle and that it's kind of like celebrity driven and that it's sort of like that there are these like really specific artists but like characters that were supported by the Medici and that they were kind of morally ambiguous characters I think is really important. And that that's like the particular kind of like power and position that artists have and that like we want them to have. You want to see the artist sort of behaving badly or not following the rules of society the way that that everybody else does, which is freedom, right? And that sort of like Caravaggio has this like very sort of like pornographic, like ultra fleshy, like universe that he's depicting. And then, you know, like Caravaggio's this like very kind of like goth, dark, sinister version of the same story or like Caravaggio's like next level character. That's sort of also sort of what they were saying about Frangelico. It's like, it's like coming out of Gothic art. It's like the first sort of depictions of people that are like, that like you can see the kind of like heaviness of the emotion of being in, in the middle of like a kind of immaculate conception scenario. Like you're just sort of like, what the fuck? And that that registers on your face. One of his famous paintings of Mary, there was like this dead woman, this, I don't know, probably prostitute or something that was like pulled out of the river. Her body was decomposing and swollen and that this is the body that he used um, as a model for the Virgin Mary, which is like the ultimate psychotic punk move. Political also, right? Like it's like, this is the Virgin Mary. Do you think that there's just like, there's like this magnificent factor that I feel like has to be a part of these objects? And I feel like you you see it in like, partially in this kind of like miniatureness, you know, and like the impossibility of being able to use ivory in particular um, because it was so strong to be able to like render these teeny tiny, these teeny, teeny, tiny little things. And, you know, and that you would have the skill and also the material to be able to do that and create this overall kind of like thing that's just like 
stupefying and overwhelming and sublime. That's the kind of currency of these things is like their, their magnificence, their amazingness. I'm interested in the way that things look, the way that you can trace the visual reason for an object to social conditions, economic conditions, political conditions, emotional conditions, conditions of desire. And I guess like when you're looking at an object like these cups, it's like it's mostly speculative in a way, or you could just sort of like imagine the kind of like desire function. Like, I mean, in some ways that might not have even been cognizant to the the people that are making them. These are objects like this where there's a lot of sort of like latent content. You know, it's like there's something happening on the surface in a very obvious way. Maybe they're... I mean, these are kind of commodity objects in a way, even though like their commodity-ness or status as tokens or trophies was operating differently than, say, a gazing ball spiral um, that I might be drawn to. I'm interested also in like the kind of like status of objects and the way that art potentially or and also inevitably kind of like intervenes in the trajectory of an object being kind of like seen and valued, but also just like visible. Like one of the the classic moves of art is to like make something visible that's not so visible. And I think that that visibility then sort of like triggers like the sort of psychic or emotional or spiritual sort of like why, why is that though? Like why is a, why is like a culture, is this something that we needed or wanted or deserve? Um, like what does that kind of like say about us in this moment that we're living in and how is that kind of like beautiful and dramatic and maybe tragic or sort of pathetic? Thank you all very much for listening. You have the last half an hour had the pleasure of listening to American artist Nancy Lupo talk to us about quite a lot of things, but all related to a set of ivory objects found in the Pitti Palace in Florence, former home to the Medici family. I would like to say thank you very much to Nancy for participating in this show. I'd also like to say thank you to the Arts Council of Denmark, Statens Kunstfond, and the Bikuben Foundation, Bikubenfonden, for support in making these programs. Tell No Show is produced by me, Andreas Fyre from Institut for Nobarge, and Jan Høgstrækker from The Lake Radio, and we wish you a very pleasant evening. <laughs>